And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and profit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So chances are, when you guys woke up this morning, you asked yourself sort of a a series of questions, right? Like, do I really want to get out of bed? Right now, do I really want to go to church? Uh, maybe after that, you ask yourself, like, hey, should I be wearing this? Is this a good thing to wear? Uh, life is filled with questions, right? Life is filled with questions. Some are tedious questions, like, hey, where do you want to eat for lunch? And other times, we've got weighty questions, weightier questions, like, uh, did I get the job? Will I ever amount to anything? Will you marry me? Right? Some questions are weightier than others. Our passage this morning leads us to the single most important question of all time. It's not a rhetorical question, but a pointed question. It's a personal question that comes directly from Jesus when he says, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the way that you answer that question will determine both who you are before God, but also how you'll live your life in his world. We could say it's the most foundational question that could be asked. And so we're going to unpack Jesus' question and its answer here in Mark chapter 8. I'm going to walk us through four points this morning. First, we're going to look at how this very cha- this chapter, chapter 8, is, is a pivotal moment in the book. The point that this question is asked is a pivotal moment. Second, we're going to see that the question that is asked is very personal. And then next, we're going to see how Jesus reveals his unique identity and then what that says about, uh, for us as Christians, our new reality. And so let's look at that first one. Number one, the moment is pivotal. The moment is pivotal. So this pivotal passage starts with the strange story of a a blind man. We didn't read it this morning, but I want to turn your attention to it in verse 22. This pivotal passage starts with this kind of odd story of a blind man. Read verse 22 through 25 with me. 
It says, and they, the disciples and Jesus, they came to Bethsaida. And some people from that area, they brought to him, they brought to Jesus a blind man, and they begged him to touch this man. And he, Jesus, took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, which, by the way, saliva was used as sort of a form of medicine back then, so that's what's going on. Uh, But then Jesus asked him, do you see anything after he does that? And he looked up, the blind man looks up and says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and then the man opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. It's kind of a weird and strange encounter, right? Like, this blind man is brought to Jesus, Jesus reaches out with his spit to heal him, and then the guy that he like doesn't see clearly at first, he says he thinks he sees walking trees, and this is all happening like way before Lord of the Rings came out. So this guy knows trees aren't supposed to walk, right? But it's the best way that he could describe it. He says, you know, it's too blurry to see the people clearly. And then Jesus touches him a second time, and then the guy sees clearly. The second time, the guy sees clearly, and this is the only healing story like that in all the Gospels. In all the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, this is the only healing story where the healing comes in stages. Why did that need to happen? Why did Jesus need two attempts to heal this man? Well, was he tired? Right? Was, was he kind of off on his healing game? Was, what is the point of this encounter? And what's happening, is it's, it's, the point of this encounter is to really to teach us a key lesson that really lays into why this is a pivotal point. And, and, and the key lesson is that this story is really less about healing and it's more about seeing. It's less about healing, and it's more about what it takes to clearly see. And we know this because Mark sort of uses creative storytelling here when he writes this. In this passage, in the original Greek, he uses the word for see, for sight, nine times in these few verses. And so what that tells us is that this blind man is sort of a walking analogy. He's a walking illustration of the, this pivotal point for Jesus' disciples. You know, earlier in chapter 8, Jesus kind of discerns that his own disciples that have been following around, he discerns that they're sort of spiritually blind. He says to them, you might remember a few weeks ago we talked about it, he says to them, it's like you guys have eyes, but you don't see. You have eyes to see, but you don't truly see. They've been following him around, his disciples. They've been watching him perform miracle after miracle after miracle. But they still, at this point, they don't fully comprehend who he is. They kind of sort of saw who he is, but it wasn't truly clear. They didn't have a proper understanding. It's like he was a walking tree to them. Yet, Jesus here, in chapter 8, we see that he is patient with them. He is relentlessly patient with them. He is loving. 
He is merciful. He's taking not just this man, but he's been taking his disciples by the proverbial hand, and he's gradually revealing himself to them until they finally get it, until they finally see him for who he is. And so this encounter with the blind man is really a living illustration of just that. It's not that it didn't actually happen. It's that Mark put this story here, this place in chapter Mark, to make a point. It's set up in this chapter to emphasize this pivotal point in the gospel of Mark. That once they were blind, the disciples, but now they will see. And some of us, some of us have a pivotal encounter with Jesus, just like that in our own lives. Like, where maybe you start kind of, sort of seeing who he is, but then gradually over time, he truly becomes your Lord. You truly see who he is, that he is the Christ. Like some of us maybe had a radical conversion story where there's like this single moment. You remember the day, you remember the time, you remember what you were eating, when you were, like you remember all the details of the moment that you got saved. But for most of us, that's not our story. For most of us, we're like the blind man. We're like the disciples. There's this process involved. Like maybe you started coming to church and asking questions about Jesus because of your family. Or your tradition maybe prompted you to. Maybe God used a friend who sort of like nudged you. Maybe you came here to sort of explore your own personal spirituality. Maybe you came to explore like your, your possibilities with like maybe like a cute girl or, or guy, right? I used to serve in college ministry. I know how that works. Maybe you're married. You have kids and you want to build a faith foundation for your marriage and family. You're like, I don't know how to do this. And so you start coming to church. Or, or maybe you came here for community, a community to belong to, a family to belong to. Or you came for hope in the middle of all your hurt. Whatever it is, whatever reason it is that you came, you come for your own personal reasons, but then over time, the Spirit of God begins to draw you in. Over time, the Spirit of God, of God begins to sort of woo your heart and you begin to see Jesus for who he truly is. You come to this pivotal moment. And maybe you're here this moment, this morning, and, and, and maybe... Maybe that moment is, is, is this morning for you. Maybe you're here this morning, morning and that, that moment, this moment, is, is that for you. You see, really, that is the goal of grace. That is the goal of God's grace. The goal of God's grace is to give you eyes to clearly see, to give you a new mind to comprehend, a heart to receive how amazing Jesus Christ really is. It's grace that draws you in, and it's grace that will lead you home. It's grace that grabbed your hand and brought you to Jesus in the first place, and it's grace that will open your eyes. Jesus' mission is to remove us from the prison of our own darkness so that we can begin to see him in new light. And only grace can do that. And so now, as we read on, we see that this is a pivotal moment. 
Not just for the blind man. It's a pivotal moment for the disciples. And it's not just a pivotal moment for the disciples. It's a pivotal moment in the entire gospel of Mark. When we really, for the first time, get to see clarity for them and for us in the gospel of Mark on who Jesus really is. And maybe this morning is just a pivotal moment for you. And so that leads us now to the very personal question, which is our point number two. This question that Jesus asked is personal. It's personal. Read verse 27 with me. It says, Jesus now, he went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way there, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, when Jesus is asking this question, he's sort of teasing out the greatest, most foundational question that we can ask ourselves. He asked them a pointed question, right? He asked them a pointed question. He says, hey, who is it that people say that I am? And listen, this is important. Like the location that he's asking this, Caesarea Philippi, the location is huge here. The location is key to understanding the weight of not just what's happening, but the weight of what he is asking. You see, this conversation is taking place right outside. It says Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi. Jesus led them to this place intentionally, and this location matters. You know, often when you're about to have sort of like this life-changing conversation, sometimes like the location that you pick for that conversation matters, right? Like you want it to sort of match the weight of the question. This is why most marriage proposals don't happen at gas stations, right? I know some of you are like, wait, Jim Halpert proposed to Pam in the office at a gas station, right? But even then, so like that's kind of an exception to the rule. And even then, you got to understand that what was happening in that scene there is like Jim and Pam, it's like their whole relationship is marked by hardship, right? They have to press through everything. And so it was actually like the location of it being a gas station and raining and all of that kind of added for them weight to what was happening. When I proposed to my wife, uh, I, I popped the question on a boat uh, off the shore from Crystal Cove Beach. It was one of our favorite beaches. And I, and I chose to do it off of the shore uh, in a boat for two reasons. One, she was stuck on that boat until I got the answer I wanted. Um, totally kidding, by the way. Some of you are like, man, what an awful guy, right? <laughs> Poor woman. Uh, but, but, but seriously, though, number two is uh, Crystal Cove is like one, one of our, like it's a favorite beach of ours uh, with one of our favorite restaurants. And so we wanted to be able to sort of look out from the shore of that beach and say, hey, remember that day? Remember that day that like I asked you that, that question? And this, in the same way, in, in that same way, this location matters. The place is called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar actually named it after himself. And then Herod built a massive temple there to to honor Caesar, who was an oppressive ruler. Uh, And the temple was built there to sort of like flex their strength to the rest of the world. So this, this, this region and this temple was really sort of the crown jewel of the oppressive Roman Empire. The region also had old temples scattered throughout it to pagan gods like Pan and like Baal. And so this region, Caesarea Philippi, was known for both corrupt power and pagan worship. 
the worship of false rulers and false gods. There was an actual seal on the temple and on all the coins at that time with an inscription that said, Caesar is the son of God. And so in this location, at the place where the worship of false gods and emperors and rulers, at that location is where Jesus wants to sit down with his disciples and discuss who he really is. What is his true identity? This is where he's going to proclaim to them that he is the king in the truest sense of the word. Not these pagan gods, not these oppressive rulers. Jesus is the reality from which all other kings and gods are the parody. But before Jesus gets to that, he wants to know now where his disciples are at. He gets more personal with them. He asks in verse 27, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And like today, people have all sorts of ideas and opinions on how to answer that, right? Remember, this conversation is taking place at Caesarea Philippi, and so Jesus led them there in, in, in intentionally to get to the, to, to, to the key of who he really is. He asks, who do, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And people have all kinds of opinions for what, how to answer that. Like some people say that Jesus is a wise sage, right? That he's sort of like a Yoda or a Gandalf type. Others say that Jesus is like a, a social activist who fought for the marginalized. Others say he's this nuanced philosopher that brought new ideas on how to think of ourselves and think of the world. Others say he was a peacemaker or a revolutionary or like the original hipster, right? But none of these are the full truth. Some of them are partly part of the truth, but they're not the full truth. They're not the clear truth. They're not the whole truth. Jesus is right outside Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, what's the word on the street about me? Who do people say that I am? When you're downtown in the square, what are they saying? What do they think this is all about? And the disciples respond in verse 28. It says that, that they told him, they told Jesus, they say that you're John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others say one of the prophets. Now these guys, they're all dead prophets, right? They're Hall of Fame hitters for sure, but they're still dead. And so word on the street they're saying is that Jesus, you're, you're like some kind of reincarnated prophet, which is probably because, you know, Jesus was this gifted preacher and orator who, who spoke with authority uh, unlike anyone else. We read about that in previous chapters. And so Jesus presses into them further in verse 29, and he gets even more personal. He says, what about you? He asks them, what, who do you say that I am? And then Peter, who's not shy at all, answered him and says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And that question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? That is a question from Jesus for all of us today. You cannot think of a more important question that you have to settle in your heart and mind. That is a personal 
question. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He's like, yeah, I know what what people are saying, but now who do you say that I am? Don't quote to me the t-shirt or the bumper sticker. Don't quote the philosopher or the theologian or the historian. Who do you say that I am? That is the big question he asked them, and that is the big question he demands from us today. Who do you say that I am? It's the question above all other questions that we have to deal with. We have all kinds of questions about who about Jesus, and he deals with our questions in the Gospels. But then he offers us this one. Who do you say that I am? And everything for them, everything for us, Everything for our world hinges on your answer to that question. You see, following Jesus is not a decision that can be made for you. It can't be a decision that you make because of your, your family and your friends follow Jesus because you were raised that way. It can't be a decision that you make because church is just kind of what you do. It can't be because of your tradition that you come from. It has to be a decision that you make. And nobody can make that decision for you. Nobody can. This is a call from Christ himself to put your faith in him, to surrender to him as what Peter calls the Christ, as Lord. See, this was a pivotal moment for the disciples. Jesus asked them to personally respond to who he is. And Peter responds, you are the Christ. Now that leads us to our next point. Number three, Jesus' unique identity. Jesus' unique identity. You see, to, to call Jesus a prophet, or to call him even like a reincarnated prophet, like, like the rumors were saying, would have been like pretty awesome and respectable. But it wouldn't be enough because it wasn't the full truth. You see, Jesus wasn't just a prophet who spoke on behalf of God. He was also the true king, the true ruler and and the one who has true authority and dominion over all. And he wasn't just the true and high king. He was also the great high priest, the one who laid down his own life for us. When he says, when Jesus says, or when Peter says, rather, you are the Christ, Peter was referring to the Old Testament word for king. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's saying, Lord, you are the appointed one. You're the promised one from the Old Testament, the great king of all kings. Remember where they are, right? Remember, Caesarea Philippi. Does this location matter when he says that? Absolutely. Like he's calling, Peter's calling Jesus the Christ, the Christ the King on the border of Caesarea Philippi, on the border of the region known for kings, known for emperors, known for gods and worship. And Peter is saying, no, Jesus, it's not about them. You are the one. You are the Christ. In the shadow of the Roman Empire, city of pagan temples, he's saying, Jesus, you are the king above all earthly power and also above all heavenly powers. Rome was this violent and ruthless 
regime. And Peter says, no, you're the king. You're the rightful king. You're the good king, the true king, the beautiful king. Peter's saying, Jesus is not primarily your homeboy. He's primarily Christ, the king. The one with power. The one with dominion. The one who spoke our universe with the power of his voice into existence. Peter, when he says that, he recognizes the greatness of Christ the King. But he still didn't get the full picture of what kind of king Jesus would be. Peter scored Sunday school points for knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, but he still had little understanding of what this Messiah would actually do, about what kind of Messiah was his, this Christ. Peter got this part wrong. He saw the eye vision chart, but he still missed the big E. He didn't understand that this Messiah was sent to suffer for his people, to suffer for his people. You see, Peter doesn't comprehend Jesus' unique identity and, and mission yet. And that's why in verse 30, Jesus, it says that Jesus told them. It says he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why would Jesus do that? Why, why would he tell his disciples not to tell anybody about him? It's because there will be a time when the disciples will see him clearly and fully. And then Jesus at that point will commission them to tell everyone. To go tell it on the mountain. But here... Peter's view falls short. He saw Jesus as Christ, but missed the beauty of what that truly means. And so Jesus goes on to explain in verse 31. Read it with me. It says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. He must do this. And after three days, rise again. And he, Jesus, he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now that word rebuke in the Greek, that means that Peter is, is condemning Jesus in the strongest possible language. That Greek word for rebuke is the, same, is the same word that we see when Jesus rebukes demons. And here, Peter's giving Jesus that kind of rebuke. Now, why would he do that? Why is Peter so bent out of shape? Why does he react so strongly? It's because Jesus' description of what he must do as the Messiah is not the Messiah that Peter signed up for. Jesus says the Messiah, the, the Son of Man, the Christ, he must suffer. Jesus is saying, I must suffer. That word right there, that the Son of Man must suffer, reveals the unique character of God. It reveals the unique character of Christ. That suffering is the must of this sovereign King. You see, Jesus has shown again and again and again and again and again to his disciples that he is the sovereign one. That he's the one who holds control of all time, of all space and all matter. The one whose will will always be done. Whose plan will always go through. And whose kingdom will always prevail. 
The suffering of Christ that he speaks of, the suffering is not an obstacle to God's great plan. It's not an interruption of the plan. It's not a diversion of the plan. It is the plan. He says he must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. Why? Why must the Christ go through this? Because that's the kind of king that he is. He must suffer to reverse the curse of our sin. You see, this is a God who is angry with sin. He's angry with sin. He's angry with the rebellion of his creatures. He's angry that even though we were wired for his glory, we would live for our own. I understand that, 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 that's, that that's, a, that's a truth, that's a teaching that, that confronts us, right? And really, it, it, it offends us. It offends us because, because it tells us that there's something wrong with us. There's something broken with us. There's something unrighteous about us. But Jesus entered into our world so that the broken, you and me, would be restored and the lost would be found. He came to make the blind see and to make the dead alive. Jesus' cross, his suffering, is God's solution to our sin. His cross is a solution for all that is broken. Our King Jesus' cross is the penalty that was on that cross. The penalty was paid for sin so that all who trust in him would be reconciled with God and restored to the good life that God originally intended for us in the beginning. And look, this is what makes the message of Jesus so unique. This is what makes him so unique. He's unparalleled. No other religion, no other deity, no other mythology has a gospel like that. You know, some people from the outside, they'll, they'll look at this gospel and they'll say, look, like this is, this is what, I don't, what I don't like about Christianity is how exclusive it is, Right? of how judgmental it is. It says that we're all sinners and that we all need the one way to, 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 to heaven, right? Like we all need, to, we all need to, to, to get on the right train and, and, and profess the right, the right thing. But on the other hand, like there are others who are offended by how Christianity is so inclusive, by how it puts everybody on, on the same playing field, saying that we're all broken and that it doesn't matter your, your class, it doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your culture, it doesn't matter what generation you were born in or what place you, were, you came, come from, where your citizenship is hold. It says that anybody can come and drink from the well of grace. And Peter was one of those guys who was offended because he didn't get what kind of Christ Jesus was. He didn't see clearly yet. He saw Jesus like a walking tree. His distortion was based really on three things. I want to talk about them really quickly. Uh, there are no slides for this, so um, bear with me. But the first reason 
the first distortion uh, that, 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 that Peter has is that he was misreading the scriptures. That's the first distortion. It was a misreading of the the scriptures. You see, from the time that Peter was a child, Peter was told that the Messiah would defeat evil and injustice. And so this popular idea at the time was that the promised Messiah, the Christ, would be sort of like this military leader that would overthrow the government and ascend to the throne, this physical throne. The second distortion of Peter was really his own personal desires, his own personal ambition. You see, chances are Peter wanted Jesus to be a certain type of victor so that he could be sort of like Jesus' number two. And we know that because in, in, in just a, a few chapters, in just the next chapter, actually, we, we catch that the disciples, including Jesus, are, or, or sorry, including Peter, are arguing with each other about who's going to be greater in the kingdom. They're arguing about that. You see, they had this picture of like a global domination Jesus. And they pictured, himself as, pictured themselves as sort of like his political cabinet. And so, and so they're, they're arguing about who's going to be greatest on that cabinet. Who's going to be the greatest on his team in that kingdom. Peter's third distortion was a, really his worldview lens. He was looking at Jesus through his worldview lens. Sociologists define worldview as the lens through which you view the world. We all have a worldview that we're, 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 we look at the world through, right? Like it's what, the worldview is what shapes and frames and colors your view on the world around you. And Peter was born into a traditional worldview that said that the Messiah would come to defeat temporal suffering, not spiritual suffering, temporary suffering, not eternal suffering. And because of these things, because of these three distortions, Peter wanted a Messiah who did not suffer. We could say he wanted a king without a cross. You see, Peter's vision of Jesus was so opposed to God's great plan of salvation through the cross that Jesus calls it satanic. Verse 33, it says, turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter wanted a Christ without a cross. And Jesus said, no, that's demonic. That is so opposed to God's beautiful plan for all eternity. But really, are, are we any better than, than Peter? Are, are, are we any better than Peter? I mean, my wife is, but what about the rest of us, right? What about the rest of us? Like, we, we all have a vision of who Jesus is, right? We all have a vision of who Jesus is. Maybe you see him clearly, or maybe he's a little fuzzy to you. Maybe all you see are the parts of him that, 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 that you like, that are made in your image, or maybe you're here as a skeptic and you're only seeing the parts of him that you hate, that you can call foolish. Maybe you're seeing him more clearly in one season of life, but then your personal desires or ambitions get in the way and your prejudices get in the way, and so then you start to to see him like a walking tree. You have this stereotype that you want Jesus to sort of fit into, and so you end up creating a Messiah. You end up creating a Christ that really just gets behind your way of thinking, a Christ who only gets behind your politics or gets behind your social cause. 
Maybe you're misreading the scriptures. I mean, God's word is complex and it's simple at the same time, though. It, it's drawn out, and it's, but it's layered. It's easy to sort of pick the stuff that you like and, and ignore the stuff that you don't to interpret it according to your own sort of preferences. Maybe you're completely unaware that you have a cultural worldview framing the way that you look at the scriptures, the way that you view God and what it means to follow him. That was Peter's error. error. He missed the real Jesus. He would get it eventually, but here, when Jesus rebukes him, he missed it, and Jesus calls him Satan. Peter wants Christianity without a cross. But anyone who presents forgiveness and mercy with a holy and righteous God that does not require a cross is really just doing the deceitful work of the enemy, and that's Jesus' point when he rebukes Peter. You see, we, we are justified before God by faith and by grace alone. If there was any other way, then Jesus could have said, look, I might go to the cross. I could suffer, but instead he says that he must he must. In having to die, Christ shows us the greatness of our sin. That's why the gospel's offensive. But in his willingness to die, Christ shows us the greatness of God's love. And that's why the gospel woos us and humbles us. That is the unique identity of Christ. He's the kind of king who goes to the cross. That's what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so beautiful. It's not just that he goes to the cross as some normal dude, but that he's the king of all the universe who went to the cross. And it's not just that he's the king who rules over all. He's the king who rules over all and is willing to suffer for his servants. He's a king with a cross. Someone should name a church after that. You see, there's this, this tension between God's holiness and his love for us that is only resolved at the cross of Christ. Why? Because Jesus absorbed the debt that we must, that we must pay himself so that we could receive mercy. So what does that mean for us now? If this is your king, if this is the Christ that you follow, what does this mean for us now? Consider our fourth and last point, our new reality. Read verse 34 with me, down to verse 38. It says, Now calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, in other words, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Jesus has heavy words for us at the end of this chapter. And what he's saying is, look, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to have true life, 
if you want to have good life, beautiful life, if you want to live life as it was intended to be lived, then you will have to follow me and take up your cross. What does he mean? What is a cross? A cross is a symbol of death. In this day and age, there was no clearer, more gruesome, more gnarly picture of death than the cross. Romans weren't allowed to be crucified on a cross because it was so beneath them. They only, they only reserved uh, that type of capital punishment for the worst of the worst, for those that they considered less than human. The cross is a symbol of death. And so what does Jesus mean when he says, take up your cross and follow me? Now, he's not talking about a burden to carry in life. Like sometimes we say, ah, oh, you know, this is just my cross to bear, <laughs> right? This is my cross to bear. We misuse that phrase when we, when we say that. Do you know what it truly means to take up your cross? Cross-bearing is basically giving up your life. Giving up your life to God. Not in a physical, temporal sense, but in a spiritual, weighty sense. It's about self-denial. It's about surrender. It's about renouncing personal ambitions and saying, I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm going to live for God's glory and for the good of others. Do not build your identity, Jesus says, in what you gain or accomplish in this world. Don't build your life on what can be taken from you. If you do, you'll just end up losing everything. What good is it to gain the world, he says, and lose your soul? Jesus is talking about giving up the claim that you have on your own life and living for God. It's about holding nothing back from Him. You can't half-heartedly love Him. You can't half-heartedly follow Him. You can't half-heartedly worship Him. And so that means for the proud, it means renouncing your desire for status and for position. For the greedy, it means renouncing the desire for stuff, for treasure. For the complacent, it means renouncing the desire for the easy life. For the anxious, it means renouncing your desire for control. You see, this is the way of Jesus. It's the way of giving up your life, surrendering it to him. Don't be surprised when you are called to self to when you're called to self-denial that it affects every area of your life. Like we we, we got to ask ourselves what is what is the thing what is what is it that is keeping you from wholeheartedly following Jesus? What is it that's getting in the way? What is it that you're holding on to? What thing what person, what decision, what posture, what thought, what worldview are you so clinging and hanging on to that's keeping you from seeing him clearly, from following him truly? Whatever that thing is, that is what you need to repent of today, to turn from. 
And if you try to build your life on anything other than God, other than Christ, the foundation, it will not work. It'll be like sinking sand. If Jesus came to live his life for you and to die in our place, then our response cannot be compartmentalized. Like if our hearts are our home and we give Jesus the keys only to a few rooms, like where we say like, hey, Jesus, you know, you can make your home here, but, but just stay out of the bedroom, right? Don't go in the office. Don't go down to the basement or don't look at my garage. Stay away from that closet. But Jesus tells us here in these last few verses that really only complete surrender brings true freedom. That's why he invites you to take up your cross because he wants to make you new. Denying yourself includes some type of death. Like you have to die to your thoughts, to your affections, to some of your passions, and, and that's hard to do, right? Following Jesus should be hard to do because you have to give up something of your old self. Denying yourself includes some type of feeling of death, yes, but it also includes some type of resurrection. Christ's desire is to remake us, to, for us to be remade to live for the glory of God and for the good of others. That's what we were made for. That's the mission we were redeemed for. The truth is that true and lasting purpose and satisfaction only comes when we're living for Jesus in this way. You see, if you, if you, the Jesus that you follow, um, just you, if you've heard me say this before in the Gospel of Mark, like if the Jesus that you follow um, just happens to line up with your desires, with your thoughts, with your passions, with your lifestyle, if he just happens to line up with, 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 with all of that from you, then, then chances are he's not the real Jesus. He's a Jesus that you've made in your image, and you can't call him Christ. You can't call him Lord or King in any true sense of those words. But Jesus says true and lasting purpose, real meaning, lasting satisfaction only comes when we live for him in this way, where we give up our lives for him. Then we begin to discover that, yes, this is what it's all about, that the way of the world is life, um, that the way of, 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 of life in the world or the way of living in the world is, 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 feels like life to us in the beginning, but eventually ends in death. But the way of Jesus seems like dying at first, but it brings true life. It brings resurrection life. John Stott, uh, in, in his book, on, on this passage, he writes, the self that we are to deny and disown and crucify is really like our fallen self, our broken self, which is everything within us that is incompatible with Jesus Christ which is why Christ commands, let him deny himself and follow me. The self that we are to affirm and value is our, really our originally created self. Everything within us that is compatible with Jesus Christ. Hence his statement, 
that if we lose ourselves by self-denial, we shall find ourselves. And then he clarifies, true self-denial, the denial of our false fallen self is not the road to self-destruction, but it's the road to true and lasting self-discovery. You see, this type of self-discovery, this type of new life, this type of resurrected life is what we were made for. Though we're called to deny ourselves in humility and in service, there is the promise of resurrection glory. Picking up your cross means, look, I don't come to Jesus to negotiate. I don't come to prove myself. I come to repent, to surrender, to give myself to Christ, the King of the cross. Have you done this? Have you done this already? Have you done that this morning? Have you done that before, but maybe you need to return to a clearer point of view of how you answer that question, who is Christ to you? Come to him with no restrictions, with no agenda, with a heart of humility. King Jesus took his cross up to suffer for you. Now will you surrender to him? Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.